It's time to level up your learning experience. It's time to level up. Welcome to the Level Up Learning Show. Welcome back to a new episode of the Level Up Learning Show. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, my name is Jared Borman. I'm an instructional designer for AEA Learning Online. And today I have a very special episode because I don't have just one, but I have two special co-hosts that are going to be joining me. I have Deb Cleveland coming back once again and a prior co-host before, Melissa Wickland. All right, so this is my first time having two guest co-hosts, Melissa and Deb. I'm excited to be here. Right with you, Melissa, right with you. Um, As we get started here in this conversation, during the time of this recording, we're obviously in the midst of spring. I can tell you things around here are definitely getting greener. Um, And with spring, that means that we also probably get into some tasks around the house that we maybe we enjoy and maybe we don't enjoy. So I think, um, Deb, I think you threw out the question of what are some spring tasks that we either enjoy or don't enjoy, or what are you, what's on the to-do list coming up in the next week or two? Well, mine is kind of past, but I've been uh, dealing with a rabbit issue at our house. And mm. so last spring or last Two falls ago, I planted tulips for the first time, and I am not a green thumb, but I planted some tulips and was excited, and I saw them come up last spring, and they grew about three inches, and then they disappeared because the rabbits ate them. So how did you know it was rabbits? Did you have, like, a camera Uh, set up, or...? We have a lot of rabbits around um, our backyard and around, so I guess I'm assuming it's rabbits, um, just... By that and I've seen a few lurking around they're cute but man they're hungry so uh, I've spent the past year researching how to repel rabbits uh, from my plants and so I bought uh, some blood meal or bone meal that's supposed to make them not like the smell I was all excited because the plants came up tossed some on them was like yes I'm gonna have tulips and then as I was doing a little more reading oh you should be careful because it can burn your plants like the actual stuff so we're still in limbo. Um, I'm hopeful I'll get some tulips in the next few uh, weeks, but um, that's been my uh, challenge for the year about how to repel the rabbits and get my plants to live. And my mother is laughing at me because she's a green thumb. And so uh, to her, she just thinks this is kind of funny as I struggle along. But I'm learning lots, so that's a win. I. It sounds like you need a puppy or, or something to keep away the rabbits. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that before, but uh, we're we're pausing on that. We're pausing on that for a little bit longer. Maybe once we're out of car seats or something like that, that'll be a signal, a point where we can do it. Who knows? Or maybe when they graduate from high school. <laughs> I, I mean, you, know, you never know what's going to be the thing that causes that to happen. Yeah. All right, Melissa. We just got a second one. So we have a puppy who is now six months old. He still gets into everything, um, but he is enjoying being outside. And this week he just got introduced to our four new goats. And so that's my spring. My new spring task this year is we got four 4-H goats. And so the kids. So how did that introduction go? Like, did you have to, how did you coordinate that between the dog and the goats? I mean. I just can imagine what the goats are thinking and what the dog's thinking. The older dog, he walked up right up to him and they touched noses and they got to know each other. And the puppy is just kind of keeping his distance. So we'll see how it goes. I think today is the first day Anders is going to walk them, meaning they just get out of their cage and get to run. So it'll be interesting. How old are they? How old are they? They were just born in January, so four months old. So little. I'm picturing either like goat yoga or like something like that. Um, I'm not going to lie. So my family, when I was in school, we raised sheep. And then at some point after I left uh, the house, you know, went on to college or whatever, 
they my my dad switched all of the sheep over to goats because it ended up being more profitable so he was for him it was it was you know for profit and all of that but i'm like dad you are missing out on a business opportunity on this whole goat yoga thing like you could create out at our farm this whole goat theme park if you really wanted to where this this whole experience of yoga over here stuff over here because goats just became insanely popular at that point you know where all those goat videos were popping up everywhere online because they when they bleat they sound like they're screaming and everybody of course was like thinking that was the funniest thing ever so it's like dad you could really turn this into a major profit and he wanted nothing to do with that he goes that is not at all what i was thinking Jared, my dad is a farmer, and I can just imagine if I suggested goat yoga for his mm-hmm. I'm, I, Yeah, I get it. I mean, I see why you said it, but I can see my father's reaction in my head. Yeah, exactly. So, no, I totally get the whole goat situation, and four is an easy one to manage, but I just, I envision, you know, what is going through the goat's heads when they see these dogs, and then what's going through the dog's head when they see the goats because they're probably thinking they look similar but then are they playing with each other like goats are very playful well it's very interesting because the goats are a lot like the dogs because they will follow the kids they will run with the kids you don't even need a leash to Uh going and so they're very similar in what they act like and very playful so Uh need to get their playground set up when they get a little bit older and They'll be running and jumping and getting their muscle tone up for the for the fair in July. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, they're fun stuff. They're a fun animal. They're they've definitely got character, I would say, more so than other kind of farm animals. They they're pretty humorous. And of course the the laughing too. I got um um you wanna see you wanna see my my goat impression? Please. All right, here we go. This is this is my one. I don't do a lot of impressions, but this is an impression that I do that I feel like I've got it nailed down. Okay, I got to do it from a profile though. So here's my goat impression. You tell me how accurate this is, Melissa, since you got goats now. That's pretty accurate. That's but, right. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Anyway, all right. Now that I'm done embarrassing myself, um, for the show and tell today, Melissa, you brought one, right? I did. Okay. So, do we need a setup for it, or are we thinking let's just watch and react when we come back? Let's just watch and react. Let's do it. sometimes yeah we don't get what we want all the time uh-huh mama also don't papa also don't but it's hard for babies to do, to do that you know earlier baby dropped the the plate and papa got angry with her and they they told papa to make this i told papa to stop being slow and make a small choice mm-hmm. for Papa. Then did he do it? Yeah, but but earlier I I chose to be a tiny bit mad, but but after a while I was okay. You were okay. Mm-hmm. Life is like that. We get upset. We get mad. We cry. That's emotions, Mama. That's emotions. I know. And then. We feel better after we cry. Yep. Can you even when you're upset or angry? Mm-hmm. Always different types of feelings. 
Even though when they were scared. Mm -hmm. That's another emotion. <coughs> yeah, a different kind of emotion. Mm -hmm. No, I was wrong. Today, I, I had a, all of them doing the emotions. Yeah. Yeah, it's just today. It's okay. But it we're, means, le we're learning. Even though when I was that mad, you still love me that so much? Of course. Always. Yeah, I love you too. How great was that? I mean, a four-year-old is just adorable. He was really good at articulating. Like, that that was crazy how well that was articulated. And then um, just the connections that were being made between emotions and actions and choices and all of that. That was, that was incredible. That was a really good one, Melissa. And the mom was so good about validating his feelings that... You know, she was feeling the same way, and it's okay to feel that way and to express things the way that he was, so. I was thinking, I need to remember this when I am, like, getting my buttons pushed and be like, if a four-year-old can do this that well, I, too, can express myself as well as that child. Yep, exactly. No, good reminder for everybody all the way around, but um, when it came to this particular video, why'd you choose this one, Melissa? Uh, because of the speaker that we're going to talk to next is Lori, Dr. Lori. I can, I'll, I struggle with her last name, Jared. I know she, she pronounced it for us and it doesn't sound the way it looks. It's one of those kind of names. So I think it's Dessa. Dessa Tells. Dessa Tell. Yeah. So Dr. Lori Dessa Tell. And, um, how did you guys come about, uh, like come across some of her work like i guess i'll let you guys kind of introduce her and how you guys came upon her work well she's going to be actually a speaker at a couple of conferences happening in iowa uh in june and we'll talk about those maybe at the end but um so you know looking across the spectrum of the state of iowa we're always looking for what are what's our audience interested in and what are they hearing and so this became that so we kind of did some research and then melissa mentioned hey She's got a new book. Her book just came out in January, and Deborah and I have both read the book. It's called Intentional Neuroplasticity. Doesn't sound like something, not a regular book that I would pick up, like go through a bookstore and pick up this book. But um, it was a very, very good book, not only for me as a teacher, but also a mom, a friend, a human, just a human being learning about intentional neuroplasticity. So... So let's take a listen to the interview that we did with Dr. Desatel. I shouldn't say we, it was more you guys leading the interview. But when we go ahead and take a listen to it, we'll come back. And then I had some notes that I definitely want to share in the reflection. How's that sound? Sounds great. It's time to level up. Well, thank you, Deborah, and um, also to everyone who has put together this time to really share with educators and and um, to really look at where we are in 2023 in the educational process. This is, you know, April and across the country, um, state testing is beginning to happen in our classrooms and schools. Not beginning. I mean, I think many states have are already going through that. But, um, no, we are sitting inside probably a time that's unprecedented as far as the um, the mental and emotional health of our children and youth. And I've really taken a deep dive into this over the last few months. And in the United States, we have the highest um, depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation in children and youth that than we've ever had. Um, we also know that um, our educators are being intimately affected by the adversity and trauma in our communities, um, whether it is, um, you know, school shootings, living in these, this aftermath of COVID. Um, we know that COVID was, it's lessening the pandemic, but the impact of COVID has really um, settled 
into the nervous systems of our children and youth and our educators. And with the chronic unpredictability and the isolation that they experienced over the past few years, that is, you know, a part of that nervous system, which creates a survival response. So with staff shortages across the country, um, more and more is asked of educators and, um, and really looking again at this um, really a mental and emotional health crisis that our children and youth are experiencing. It's a challenging time. So my work right now is working with districts and organizations, communities across the world. As you said, I'm in Wyoming with, right now, and this is really a special trip because after I shared with the educators, now I'm back in the classrooms and I'm modeling the applied educational neuroscience framework practices that are a tier one trauma accommodating um, it's a tier one trauma accommodating framework that is a part of our procedures. So as soon as this is over today, I am going into another kindergarten, first, second, and third grade class. And um, and then what we've done is we've gathered all of the teachers in that grade level around to observe and take notes um, as they watch me interact with the students, you know, m mirroring some bell work, some morning meeting. And then we process together. And tonight I'll be working um, or sitting beside parents in the community. So we're really trying to triangulate this work so that um, our parents are a part of this as well. And I have to say um, this area in Wyoming has done a wonderful job with um, planting the seeds for um, really sustainable work as we address the social and emotional health of our children and youth. Um, one of the things I heard you mention was this idea of unpredictability and how that has really created an impact on students and um, what that's looking like in the classroom then for teachers. And I think even unpredictability for with teachers, there's a lot uh, to be said there as well. You know, absolutely. And the nervous system, when I talk about the nervous system, it's really how the brain and the body are constantly communicating. And we taught this to our children yesterday. And they get it, you know? I mean, they, they soak it up like sponges. And, and so we need routines. You know, we all know that. We, we, we love a vacation. You know, we love a nice weekend off. But for us, when we get out of a routine for a sustainable amount of time, um, it just, it feels arrhythmic. And so the nervous system is really built for predictability. And, um, and we... You know, we need those procedures and that those boundaries and those structures um, that help guide us through the environment and our experiences. And really, we can take the nervous system of a human organism. We can take anything, really, as long as it's we know it's coming. And I've always said that. But when you live day to day, moment by moment, with, you know, just ordinary life being so chronically unpredictable, that wears and tears down um, the nervous system. And I mean neurobiologically. And, and so it, it impacts every system in our bodies. So our endocrine system is impacted. Our cardiovascular system, our digestive system, um, our immune system, because our emotional responses and our emotions really send signals out every second to the environment and internally saying, Am, you know, this feels safe to me or this feels dangerous. And so when you live inside a very toxic environment, you live in this hypervigilant, hyperarousal state where even ordinary moments can feel very dysregulating. So this is something that is built into our evolutionary biology, which is amazing because the nervous system is built to survive. So even if someone, I was telling some of the teachers yesterday, if someone rolls their eyes at you, you know, and I'm saying to a, to a kid, you know, or, or someone rolls their eyes at me, that feels threatening. And so what happens is my emotional system unconsciously 
begins to feel a sense of threat and my body revs up as if there is actual physical harm. And, and so when we think about it, um, some of the newest research calls that an evolutionary mismatch. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of our adults, but we're also seeing it in a lot of our children where they are living in this, you know, hyper arousal stress response state and everything feels like a threat or everything feels, whether it's a comment, someone rolling their eyes, bumping into them, um, a tone of voice that feels very dysregulating. So all this dysregulation, how are you helping the students, particularly going into a kindergarten classroom? So how are you teaching those kindergartners to regulate their body systems? I know in your book, um, you really talk about it starts with the teacher or the adults in their life. And then once those adults are regulated, right, they can pass it on to kindergartners. But how are you helping in those classrooms? Well, this is, I think, the best part of this work is that when, so first of all, I have so many things to say, I've got to just slow down. Um, so we come into the world as infants, as, as sensory beings. So when you are born, you are warmth. You are your wetness. You are your hunger. You are your rhythm. And we, the words don't come online until the end of the second year. And so kindergarten students are really in touch with their nervous system, but nobody asks them. Nobody asks our children, you know, when there is, you know, when you feel afraid, what does your body do? When you feel anxious, what is your heart saying to you? When you feel fearful, what does your head tell you? And yesterday, those five-year-olds knew exactly how their nervous system was responding. It was, I have goosebumps even telling you this. I can't wait to go back into another elementary today with kindergarten students because it wasn't an anomaly. They really are most connected at an early age to their sensory systems. And so the way, going back to your question, um, we the, the very first thing is we help them to become aware of their sensory, of their sensations. You know, knowing when you feel tight, knowing when you feel teary, or when you feel stuck, or when you feel cold. Those are different than feelings. So we talk a lot about drawing your sensations, coloring your sensations. And and then yesterday, they even drew their breast. And I posted this on social media this morning. I had them, I, I did it first. And I said, I asked them, have you ever seen what your breath looks like? And oh my gosh, they raised their hands. Because you know, in Wyoming, you see your breath nine months out of the year. And so they all knew, oh yeah, we see our breath all the time outside. And so I said, okay, so let's, let, so you know, you see your breath, you know, you have good, strong breath. So let's draw your breath. And so I had them breathe in and then they drew a line up and then breathe out long and slow. And they drew another line down and we did it three times. And then they had this beautiful shape and then they used, you know, colors and lines and, and so that they, it really validated their breathing and we validate how they feel because i had one little girl say that i am I, I think the question was when do you feel most afraid and she said when i can't wake up my mom and so when something like that is being shared we i need to validate that you know i need her to know that i hear her and that um i'm right here with her i'm very present and, and so I will say to her, when your body tells you that you feel that way, then what are some things that you do? You know, what are some things that, what do you tell your body? What do you say back to your body? So, um, and it was really interesting yesterday too, because for the teachers, there was some, as they were observing, they were taking some wonderful notes. It gave them some perceptual data that you, you know, you don't always get when you're just in the thick of it. You know, you, you don't have that opportunity. 
to sit back and, and observe. None of us do because we've got 30 children running around. And so that that's the part of the work that I love. I call this phase two of the work. It's introducing the work to a district. It's introducing it to administrators um, and, and to the entire staff, creating possibly adult resiliency teams. But then it's... I. I love being back in the classroom and modeling what I'm doing in Indianapolis with seventh grade students this year. So cool. Um, one of the things that I think when we're looking at the book that I really appreciated is sort of taking this neuroscience, which feels sometimes a little inaccessible to me, newer, I guess, and then translating it into something that really is applicable to the classroom and also then giving me practices, and I was, Melissa and I were talking about it, not just that we can use and have students do, but that applies to stuff that I can do kind of at home, even yes. in my own personal life. So it really translates across that. Um, I, I found myself trying some of these breathing exercises and things with my children at home. My, I have little kids at home and also um, can see it being very applicable in school. And the other thing I noticed is some of these are pretty short. Like some of these are things that you do, bell work you ca called it, Right. Um, that starts a class or ends a class, um, but you build that. Is it's part of the routine that that teachers are using in their classrooms throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. So to both points that you just spoke about, and this um, framework is about us as a human. I mean, I I have changed the way I parent today. It is my three children now are adult, young adult children, but young adults, not children, young adults. But um, I still parent them differently. My daughter, Sarah, who's 28, um, I have learned that what I would have done when she was younger, but I do now is validate her. That seems to calm her nervous system, you know, even from a distance, um, just listening and, and really leaning in to her um, challenges and being with her. So it is not adding to anyone's plate. Um, it is about our procedure. So Deborah, you're exactly right. And that's the beauty of this is that it's not a social and emotional program that's, you know, integrated from 10 a.m. to 1030 every day in a classroom. This is work that this is all day long. This is and, and it begins with the adult. I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, it really you know, it, it it really is just about the adult nervous system. If schools could really integrate and embrace that, the culture of every organization, home, school, would change if we were not always being, it's not about always being regulated, which I speak about in the book. It's having the awareness of when you're really off. And that's key. When you you did that right when you showed up, you you were you verbalized when we first got online here where you were and that, and it didn't necessarily impact the conversation or what we were talking about, but like the awareness was there. And so I think even modeling that awareness in the classroom to students, saying, "Oh, I'm you know, this is very like I'm off I'm off kilter I'm off track right now. I need a moment to sort of center myself." And then modeling those practices, I think. So I can see when you say it starts with the classroom teacher and the adult in the room that being applicable. It really is. And when and we all know this, right? When any of us are in a survival state, we're very aware of nonverbal communication. And we're aware when the verbal and the nonverbal are not aligned. You can hear a teacher's voice and there's a smile on his face, but you know that that's not, that's not the story. Um, and in, in my book before this new one, Connections Over Compliance, a principal in Fort Wayne, Indiana, talks about that. He says his 500 students um, <laughs> would be the best TSA agents at the airport. Um, they come in and they know exactly the state of the adult nervous system. So if you're not authentic, you're off to a very poor start because um, our kids read us. Our own children do. I mean, my girls and Andrew still do today over the phone, and they're absolutely 100% accurate in their assessment of my nervous system state. 
And so how do you start your work with a district? What's that phase one? You talked about phase two, but really phase one is all about the adults. And so how do you get the adults and particularly the admin on board when you're working with a district? Well, it begins with administrators. And um, I really, as I move through this time and I'm learning just like we all are every day, um, over the last few years, when I think of the four pillars of applied educational neuroscience, the very first pillar is the adult nervous system. And, um, you know, if there is a school where I've got 30 teachers that are on board, but the administrator is resistant, it, it makes it very difficult for that school to move forward with this work. And so phase one is really introducing the work to the administrators. And I'm also going to be very honest in our conversation and say that oftentimes it's not just about the administrators of a building, it's central office. And there is often a gap between central office and administrators. You can have 12 elementary schools with their administrators and their leadership on board, but if there is this resistance in this, you know, hierarchical central office, and, and you're not, the administrators are not feeling supported, then it, it it's really challenging. Um, and traditionally, schools and districts and systems, the educational system, are still focused on learning loss. Um, we are still an academic content-focused system. And even through these, you know, adverse childhood experiences, the studies, and adverse community environments and the layers of trauma that we see our children and educators carrying in every day, it's there is this, in phase one, I, I think the big resistance comes from the adults, not the children, I can say. So um, we are creatures of habit and um, it's really hard for us as adults to really understand that traditional discipline does not work with pain-based behavior. And phase one is also about looking deeply and questioning um, what, where we are as a school, where we are as an organization, where we are as a practice, where we are as a, as a district. Um, because if we don't look at our own discipline data, and we don't really study those gaps and those holes and, and, and really look to see, you know, where we are, then we miss the mark. And we're going to be continuing to suspend, exclude, um, kick out, you know, and expel students that are in most need of connection and co-regulation. I will say to get on phase one, this book that you wrote is phenomenal. And it, oh, like Deborah you. said, it really touches not only the school, but it touches me as a human, as a mom. And to get teachers on board is really about reading some of your work and digging deep into that before <laughs> doing it with your own, within your own classroom. So I really appreciate the book. It really gave some background to intentional neuroplasticity. So, oh, thank you, Melissa. When we think about some of the work you've done, um, big wins in the field, big things that you've seen, I mean, and not necessarily, maybe systems change is, you know, always a goal, I think, but also just big wins where you've seen a growth in a classroom or a student. Got any stories to share? Or do you, I always like to kind of get that kind of out there because it makes it so authentic to what we're talking about and gives people something to sort of hang their hats on. Well, Deborah, I think you're the only person in a podcast that's ever asked me that in that way. Um, and, you know, the of course, big wins. You know, we want to see the data supporting this, but, you know, we it takes time. Um, and, and I know that. And also COVID really threw us back as far as integrating this framework, um, you know, with that sustainability. But the big wins are, they, they happen every day. For me, I am receiving, I'm not kidding you, hundreds of emails um, from across the world. I There was a school in um, South Africa that sent me their entire amygdala reset area 
um, which I posted on social media. Um, and it just said that, you know, this has just been the most significant change in their teaching practice over the last 30 years. So literally every day um, when I open, um, you know, my email or someone will send me a message through Facebook or through Instagram, um, there are too many to count. But I just, it literally, my heart is just overwhelmed with gratitude because I'm, there are so many adults that are willing to take that risk. And when they do, they're seeing the impact of this framework almost immediately. Um, it's almost, you know what, it, it, it's like, it's like the worst part of any experience is the anticipation of it. And I used to say that to my kids, you know, just that what if the anticipation or the worry of something is oftentimes the hardest part of a challenge. And once you move through that and, and give it a go, um, it, it just, yeah, it, we're, we're just seeing a lot of, um, we're just, we're, we're really tapping and tuning into the nervous system, which produces not compliance, but we're really seeing this emotional and social, um, and cognitive health of, um, children and youth. One of the things Melissa and I were talking about was how so much of this work creates safety, a sense of safety. Um, and then it keeps people out of that fight or flight mentality and therefore they could access the parts of their brain that can engage in deep learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think about it, I'm always like, wow, it's just like, you gotta, you gotta do this and then you can get to where you want to go in a much more efficient and enjoyable context and environment. Um, and so you got to kind of put a little in to get a lot of bang for your buck out because they can, they literally can access that parts of their brain to do that hard, heavy cognitive lift. Absolutely. And um, I was just reading on the plane coming here that, um, and I had never heard this term before, but, you know, the human being, the human organism is, is really baked in safety. I mean, that, that's, you know, we are social creatures. Um, we can't survive without each other, but um, it's it's really that's it, it's not only that we're social, but that we we literally are created and I love that term baked in safety, and when we lose that, um, it, you know it's devastating to the human psyche, and and one of the things that um, I mean some some people call this psychoeducation. We call it learning the language of the nervous system. Is that when our children learn about how their bodies and their brains are always working for them and not against them, and that that human that that as human beings, our nervous system knows how to get home, as Deb Dana shares, and I write about that in the book. Um, it, we know how to do that if we feel heard and seen and felt. You know, it's very difficult to do that on our own without that co-regulatory um, experience. So then that really brings it to the end of your book where you talk about that nest and that co-regulation and that safety. Can you talk about that analogy and um, where where that came from in the book or how you came about having nests as part of the book? So. We have at home, my husband um, has about 12 birdhouses on the top of our fence. And um, and he just, you know, we have all, we have beautiful birds that visit our home in the backyard. And um, I just never really paid much attention. But um, as I was writing the book, I was, we also have every year this bird nest you know, by our, that's made in the wreath um, by our front door. I think many people have that too. And so, and then there's another nest. All of a sudden these nests started appearing as I was writing chapter four, to be honest with you. And I was thinking about, I started studying birds' nests as I write about in the book. And I was thinking, 
you know, okay, well, let's look at what they're made of and how stable they are and the purpose of the nest. And then I just really thought this is, you know, we are a living system as Michael McKnight and I wrote in Unwritten. And, you know, in a living system, our nests are our culture. Um, it, it really is about our, our identity. It's about our passion. It's about our pain. Um, it's about our people and the experiences that nurture us, what feeds us. And nests hold the adult bird as well as the baby. So I really started to think about, and also nests can be damaged, you know, through storms and through weather. Um, so I've also watched nests being built, but I've also seen them being repaired. And, um, and so I thought about the natural process that we as human beings have in that rupture and repair cycle. And so when our nests are um, feeling safe to our students and to our staff, then it feeds us, you know, it provides that cell safety that enables us to access the cortex so we can teach well. And it's the same for our students. It enables our students to be able to learn and to be able to really be authentic in sharing their identities and sharing their purpose and sharing their fears and challenges and the conditions in their lives that um, feel unsettling. So with that particular interview, there were some really good pieces that I think um, all educators can make connections to for sure. Um, Deb, did you want to start with what kind of reflection you made or a connection that you made? Yeah, I think one of the things that resonated with me was how much she said, you know, this starts with the adults and not just meaning that you are necessarily teaching these practices, but embodying them yourself and having that self-awareness about how you are reacting to um, what you're seeing and hearing and experiencing. And so starting there with, you know, your own awareness of that and starting with those practices and then from there kind of taking that and modeling and almost being transparent with the kids um, in situations and classroom situations of that too, so that they can start seeing that and thinking about it also was something that just sort of was like, yeah, it does start with the adults and showing them what this looks like, how they think around it and what they can do to uh, regulate themselves and uh, keep themselves in a space that's best for learning. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the connection that I made, I liked how she talked about the uh, drawing sensations when she was talking about the kid. Uh, I think she was in Wyoming at the time, and she's talking about kids drawing their breath, not like drawing it in, but physically drawing out what their breath looks like. And then, um, you know, I think they're even like mapping the breathing in and the breathing out, which you're essentially put in a pattern with your breathing at that point, which is kind of neat. Um, I, you know, as a, I coach youth sports, I coach probably seven months out of the year between wrestling and baseball slash softball. And one thing that I know that I've tried to do in the last few years, maybe even more than that is taking a loss is not easy for kids at any age level. And so helping them de-escalate or regulate their frustration because you see kids that get really emotional, especially in those really highly competitive moments where they feel like they've worked really hard, but maybe the outcome wasn't what they wanted. And especially in wrestling, it's like you if you lose one match you got to be, you got to have a really short memory because you got to be ready to go for the next one. You have to forget the loss for now and move on to the next one in a matter of sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes, or maybe even longer. But like, that's just really hard to coach sometimes. So using particular strategies, I'll, this, I don't know if this is something mentioned in the book. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but um, in watching the show, uh, Ted Lasso, I don't know. It's a very popular show. 
um, where he talks about having, uh, you know, be a goldfish. It was in the first season where he said, have a short memory, be a goldfish. Goldfish have memories for seven seconds or something like that. So something that I've started to have kids do after a, a particular match where they're, I can see that they are visibly just frustrated and they're not sure how to express that frustration is, uh, you know, put their hand on their chest and we take seven deep breaths together. And, you know, the, the, the idea that we're trying to say to them is like at the at number seven, that means we've for totally forgotten about the match and now we're ready for the next one. And I've seen kids use that even when I'm not there to help them. And it's really cool to see them get to a point where now they're like, I can think clearly, logically, the physiological part of my body and brain isn't necessarily amped up anymore. I've been able to bring it down and now I can move on. And so it's kind of cool to see you. I'm sure there's other strategies out there, but that's kind of the connection I made to some of the, like drawing your breath, especially the breath stuff. I won't say that that I won't say that that's a strategy necessarily in the book, but it's a good strategy to help regulate their nervous system and regulate their feelings and get them back in a space that they're ready to move forward. So, mm-hmm. I like the hand touch on the like that they do that because I think it makes it there's like concreteness to it because I think sometimes breathing can feel a little abstract. I, you know, you can't see it, but having that okay, it's not just that it's two senses because you're feeling your chest come up and down you know Mm -hmm. and sometimes like you know some kids either i give them the options like they can either like hold my hands which sometimes that kind of helps them you know feel grounded in some way or they can put their hand on their own chest you know and take their deep breaths or whatever and i do the same for mine and you know or we do it together or whatever so something that helps that ground and concreteness yeah and I will say that you holding their hands for some kids is that co-regulation that she talked about a little bit, co-regulating with an adult whose nervous system is put back in space, put down, grounded, is good for the kids too. So that co-regulation is something she talked about. But I'll bounce up your idea of sensations. And I really liked what she said about having the kids say a sentence when or the adult saying a sentence to a kid, when you feel angry, what does your heart tell you? Or how does your heart feel? When you're happy, what does your what do your feet feel like? So kind of giving them a sentence about what do you feel? What sensations are you feeling when you have this emotion? I really liked how she talked about that with, you can do that with your own kids at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not just a strategy that we can use in our classrooms, but really a strategy that can be used across the board. Giving kids that vocabulary and familiarity to talk about it when they're not in a state of like um, fight or flight, but giving them that language so that then they can use it uh, when they are and already have access to it, I think is something that I appreciated, just that idea of let's let's think about this beforehand and then we can leverage that when we are in states of um, concern or worry or frustration. Yeah, and so I guess a connection I literally just made as as you were talking there, Deb, was we teach, us three teach in an online learning space. That's what AA Learning Online is all about. And obviously, we're sometimes teaching kids, we're sometimes teaching adults, other educators. So there really isn't that practice for us to have that kind of tactile moment to be able to be in the moment. And maybe, you know, when we talk about in 2020, when, when COVID was, uh, you know, shutting down some schools, it's like, maybe that's ultimately what was essentially missing to help kids deregulate a little bit in that um in those moments and so maybe that's what kind of led to it all in a sense is just that ability to be present with the kid kids kid whatever it may be and also help with that so how do you do that in an online space i think is a question that i'm now pondering so 
Yeah, we've talked a little bit, I mean, just from a very simple like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like how do we provide that safe environment in an online space? Um, get a, probably a little bit into the course that we're looking at building around this too, but the idea of, you know, how can you be predictable in an online environment? So that's a big piece of it. So consistent communication from the person via messages or the students know, hey, every Monday I'm going to get some kind of overview of the week, some kind of email there. Also then, of course, you know, injecting humor and that instructor voice is another way to do it. Those are just a few that come to mind. But yeah, it is a shift and it does take upfront planning on the instructor side in an online or blended format where oftentimes we get to have in a face-to-face -face environment, these things happen naturally um, to some degree. Not not some of the stuff, the practices that she was modeling and talking about, but some of the interactions happen and things like that. So I think um, the intentionality in an online environment, it, you have it's not just as it plays out, but there's just more intentionality and focus on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interjecting humor for sure. Intentionality of making connections in those relationships. Just because we're in an online space doesn't mean we can't get to know each other. And that's part of her book as well is really building those connections and building those relationships because as humans, we are meant to be together. We are meant to get to know each other. And so making sure we're intentional about getting to know our students online as well. Hey, you know what helps build connections? Goat impressions. <laughs> every time, every time works every time. Is that your party trick? Do you bring that out at parties, birthday parties? It's a little embarrassing how often I bust that impression out more than you would think, especially when I am looking to embarrass my kids. So um, it works every single time. But anyway, well, guys, it's been a great conversation and reflection with you. And um, you'll have to give us an update. We'll have to have you back if uh, that course is available or when it becomes available. And um, not only that, Deb, I know that... Uh, Dr. Uh, Desatel is going to be at some conferences you mentioned. Do we have um, some more information about that of like if people want to listen yep. or check out more? Um, she is going to be uh, in June at the KPEC conference in Dubuque, Iowa. Um, and we'll link the information to that conference in the show notes. And she will also be at the Focus conference in uh, Buena Vista College um, in June as well. So I think it's the similar weeks, but it's nice because depending on which part of the state you're in, you can, uh, make your way over to the one that's closer to you. And we'll link to information to those conferences, uh, in the show, but yeah, she'll be speaking at both of them. So we're really excited that she was able to hop on with us and talk to us and sort of, um, get some information out and hopefully everybody will get a chance to meet her at those events. Very cool. Well, yeah, we'll be sure to put that in the show notes, but um, appreciate you guys joining me today and hopefully the next you know as spring is springing out there hopefully uh, you can get some control on them rabbits and uh, Melissa next time that you are a co-host with me I expect a goat impression oh, I'll work on it <laughs> be working on it all right, take care, guys. Well, that does it for this episode of the Level Up Learning Show. If you want to go ahead and check out any of the show notes, you can definitely check out the link at the very bottom here. Or please join us and chime in with your voice here on any of the particular episodes at any of our social media spots. And while you're there, go ahead and follow us, subscribe to us, so that way you don't miss out on future episodes. Well, that closes out this episode, but we will see you next time on the Level Up Learning Show.